There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, everyone. Sam Willis here. Now, before we begin, I wanted to make a little announcement. I'm delighted to tell you all that I've teamed up with the excellent Bike Odyssey, a company with history and travel deep in its heart. They offer exceptional biking adventures. Bike Odyssey was set up by the historian, TV presenter and friend of mine, Sam Wood, who made the BBC documentary on Hannibal's Trail and he subsequently dedicated his life to cycling in the footsteps of great historical figures. This autumn, I'll be joining their Venetians tour, travelling in the footsteps of Marco Polo. Come along and see for yourself why the Adriatic Sea is the most scenic coastline in the world. Along the way, I'll be sharing stories from my life of travel, adventure and research, as well as exploring the history all around us. It'll be a chance not just to immerse yourself in some of the world's most fascinating history, but to change the way that you think about the past. Now, if you want to find out more, just head over to bikeodyssey.cc. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show where we demonstrate that simply everything has its own history, like pitch, edges and bears. Or keys, bees and fleas. Peas, please and please. They're, they're two very distinctly different histories there. The history of pleasing people and the history of making pleas. It's all about... Uh, We'll we'll have to do the research and find out. Very good. We will be following the links in our minds as we always do as we come across them, explaining how those links fit together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, Sam, who knew that the history of doors is in fact about the afterlife, fertility Mm. and Viking conflict? Yes. Or that the history of keys, you know, the simple key, um, has a very complex history. It's all about power, secrecy, treasure, cloth weapons and the Viking housewife. I can't see see what I've done there. Yes, it's it's tremendous. Uh, The man sitting opposite me is the battle axe of the ages. (laughs) It's Professor Extraordinaire of Early Modern British History at Plymouth University. It's James Daybell. Hello, James. Hello, Sam. What a nice sunny morning it is today. The man sitting opposite me is the Odin of old times. It's the wonderful historical adventurer, Dr. Sam Willis. Hello, everyone. Hello. Um, As you can maybe guess from our our introductions there, um, today we're going to be talking about the unexpected history of the Vikings. Now, we're doing this because... um, Last year, James and I published our big book, Histories of the Unexpected, How Everything Has a History. And um, we've been a little remiss in uh, doing our podcast as regularly as we'd like over the last few weeks. And that is because we have been writing a series of four books um, and in which we apply the idea of histories of the unexpected to various themes in history. Um, we had done the Tudors, World War II, Romans. the Romans and... You might guess it. We've done the Vikings. Can I recommend to our listeners that you never attempt to write four books at once? (laughs) Because they all come at the same time. While you're writing one, the proofs arrive, the copy edits arrive, and then all sorts of things arrive. True. So at the moment, I've been going through 
Vikings, uh, but also trying to write the Romans and also thinking about um, editing World War II. And I've been thinking about captions and the introduction to Romans <laughs> and having to write 10 chapters on Romans. Anyway, we're not going to win. no time at all. We've we're not winning. It. It's all fun. But this is why we haven't been as um, doing our podcast. And um, yes. It's uh, it's actually been massively exciting. So each of these books has got twenty different chapters, and um, the idea is we we take um, what, what you might think of about Viking history and we turn it on its head essentially, and we come at it from a completely different angle. So I think before we start doing the unexpected stuff, where would you what do you sort of think at the top of your head the Vikings m- most people consider the Vikings to be about? Traders and raiders, I think, is the Ooh. is the big is the big debate about the Vikings. I think most people see them as these sort of ferocious uh, warriors yeah. um, who come in from uh, Scandinavia uh, and move into. I mean, we're living in uh, the United Kingdom, so we, you know, our traditional history at school is about how they uh, invaded and took over large parts of our country. But also, they went across to Vinland and went, you know, and and throughout uh, Europe uh, and were very effective. Um, traditionally, they're seen as incredibly fierce, uh, partly because of the kinds of sources that survive in the Western tradition. So they tended to concentrate on attacking monasteries that were sites of wealth. And those churchmen, Christian, sort of saw them as these sort of heathen invaders. Um, the other thing that we think about is of them as traders. You know, so one of the things that has sort of undercut this sort of vicious image of them is a is a sense of them uh, as people who are merchants and traders and i think increasingly our conception of them nowadays is much more complex so rather than just these sort of vicious fighters and warriors which absolutely they are in to a certain extent they are also uh, farmers fathers sons you know, people who live there. Poets. Poets. Players, everyday life. Yeah. yeah, yeah, musicians and all that sort yeah. of stuff. Um, I think one of the one of the key things, though, is the, 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 the quality of the surviving sources about sort of the richness of yeah. descriptions of, of when they come onto the scene. There's the wonderful one from Alcuin of York. So in 793, this guy's a scholar and a clergyman. He writes to King Ethelred of Thumbria describing the raid on Lindisfarne. So this is the, the not exactly the first time, but it's the first time it's really written about in any depth of the Vikings... Vikings attacking, um, attacking England. Do you want, would you like to read? No, 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 you, 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 you. Lo, it is nearly 350 years that we and our fathers have inhabited this most lovely land and never before has such terror appeared in Britain as we have now suffered from a pagan race. Nor was it thought that such an inroad from the sea could be made. Behold, the church of St. Cuthbert spattered with the blood of the priests of God, despoiled of all its ornaments, a place more venerable than all in Britain, is given as a prey to the pagan peoples. It's brilliant. It's brilliant. The Anglo-Saxon Chronicle as well reports the ravaging of wretched heathen men and the destruction of God's churches at Lindisfarne. Um, it then goes on talking about that it sees them preceded by foreboding omens, including famine, whirlwinds, lightning, fiery dragons seeing flying through the sky. So th- there is this sort of sense that they are the apocalypse. And that's read in very sort of Christian ways. And the thing about the Vikings, I think, is also there. it's very difficult to see them on their own terms. So often the written sources that survive are 
the people that they attacked. Mm -hmm. So obviously they are skewed in a particular way. But we do have this fabulous saga literature. Yes. That comes from much later around in in Iceland, and that is a, that's a, a sort of fascinating um, source. You know that it, it's much later. A lot of it is about its myth and tradition, its oral tales that have been uh, passed down the centuries and eventually written down. But the 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 difficulty that you have is how do you relate that to what has happened some four or five hundred years before? Are there echoes of the material culture and beliefs and social practices of the Vikings. Um, it's very difficult to sort of, it's very difficult to to study and people have made whole careers out of this. The other major kind of source that is right up your street is the archaeological evidence yes. that survives, which yeah. is quite extraordinary. Well, it's some of, the, some of the most amazing things that have ever been excavated, I would say. Um, Having just written a book on the Romans, uh, I yeah, think they I, would come very close. Yeah, yes, I, I think so. But I mean, so I, inkwells. Yeah, those, those are amazing. <laughs> we'll come back and talk to them about the Romans. <laughs> so the point is, you've got you've got some very some well known traditional sources, and people have been um, looking at the Vikings from um, perspectives of raiders and traders, yep. as we say. And you've got this whole conversion to Christianity, so you can look yep. at it from terms of religion. Um, you've got all the kings, you've got the women, you've got the houses, you've got the ships. There are very Various aspects which which are kind of are, are more traditional to approach the Vikings yeah. from. And in terms of period, we're talking roughly eighth century. So early eighth century, there are certain sort of uh, movements in settlements. By seven nine three, you've got Lindisfarne attacked. Seven nine four, Iona. Eight four one, you've got a permanent Viking settlement in Dublin. And from there on, you're seeing greater degrees of settlement uh, throughout Europe. Yeah. Um, and so you can you can study it from a geographical perspective. You can study it from time. You can see how they affected and how they mixed with different people as they came across them. In that respect, it's very much like the Romans, isn't it? There's a kind of a history of empire yeah. here yeah. and uh, and how the, the, different, the different peoples associated with each other. However, James and I have decided to work out unexpected magic on it. So are you ready? These are, these are the topics we have come up with uh, for our book on the Vikings. <laughs> Should we do one? Take it in turns? No, I'm not going to read a list. And then we can just talk about them a bit. Because um, we're obviously not going to go through the whole thing. But to give you an idea of the, um, the intellectual explosion of joy uh, that this has given us, uh, we have written... Chapters on. on. Oh, chapters on. Keys... Graffiti. Nicknames. Mischief. Hair grooming. That's excellent. Hot spas and saunas. Break-ins. Colour. Toys. One of my favourites. Teeth. Doors. Goading. Criminal profiling. Birds. Luck. Friendship. Fun. Double standards. Silk. And staffs. As in wands. Ah, I like where you're going with that. So each of these Very things um, is massively significant to Viking history. And um, we've been trying to bend our brains around exactly how. And um, it's, been, it's been really enjoyable. Uh, James, what are the things that you've had fun doing most? So I, have, I want to talk about two things today. I want to talk about graffiti and toys. Graffiti for me is all about Viking travel. Mm-hmm. Because what you notice is that throughout the Viking, the area the Vikings um, travelled, they left graffiti wherever they went. So it's either runes or rough marks or short phrases, symbols, pictures. 
And in a world where paper is pretty scarce and you can't find survival of literacy, you're finding that this sort of graffiti enables us to study Viking literacy, but also travel around the world. And it crops up in the most unusual places. So we can see where they've been because they're leaving graffiti. Because they leave graffiti. And we can, yeah. we can understand their literary levels because we can see what they've written. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So there's, there's graffiti in the Hagia Sophia, yeah. in, um, which is the, the capital of the Byzantine Empire, um, which is a sort of nowadays a mosque, but was a, was a cathedral. And there's a range of Viking graffiti that's left there. There are some runic inscriptions. There are the names of two... Uh, supposed Viking uh, warriors, Halfdan and Ave. Um, there are also a series of drawings of Viking longships that can be dated to about the 9th and 10th century. Yeah. And we know that there's contact between the Byzantine and the Viking empires uh, well, during this period. Two of the period. key maritime powers of the period, yeah, it's worth saying. Absolutely. So there's no surprise that there's uh, there are links there, but it's wonderful to have the evidence of it. Yeah, yeah. So we can see that they end up there. There's also in Venice, uh, near the Arsenal, there is a lion, a Byzantine lion, yeah. um, that has a massive uh, runic um, verse on it. It's so cool. It's absolutely brilliant. And they didn't just get to Venice, but this lion was taken as plunder from Piraeus, the Athenian port, yeah. in 1687, when it taken was taken by back the as, as war booty. Yeah, yeah. And, it's, and the graffiti is very difficult to read nowadays, but tons of scholars have had their go at it. And the nearest that we've got uh, is the following. They cut him down in the midst of his forces, but in the harbour the men cut runes by the sea in memory of Horsey, a good warrior. The Swedes set this on the lion... He went his way with good counsel, gold he won in his travels. And this is thought to have been carved by one of the uh, Varangian guards, so this kind of super elite bodyguards that guarded uh, the emperor. Um, it also crops up in Orkney, of all places, where it is in a it is in a canned tomb. Yeah. Um, and there's a connection there with Vikings who are... Um, who are, who are travelling, and I think it's about the 11th century, and it's sorry, like the 12th Orkney century. Orkney at the time, you might think it's slightly out of the way, but it's a, it's like a it's like it's like a service station on the M4, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> I think that's, but, that's exactly as it is. It's it's a it's a it's a stop off point on yeah. Viking Viking trade route. So they're going from. Uh, the um, going from Norway, Nor Norway, or Denmark, Sweden, you yep. know that whole kind yep. of area across the top of Scotland onto Iceland, and it's a lovely spot to um, to stop and, and refuel or to shelter from the from from storms that to you get in the North our, Atlantic. To quote from our book, Orkney was in the middle of the principal northern Viking maritime highway. Sounds like oh. one of my sentences, James. <laughs> <laughs> it certainly does. It certainly does. But what, what's fascinating about this is that it is in this Neolithic chambered tomb where these men seem to have sheltered for the night, and there are about thirty different examples of Viking graffiti on it, um, which range from the light-hearted to, frankly, the, the the sort of slightly obscene. And we get a sort of we get a number of personal names. For example, Ofram the son of Sigurd carved these runes. Hermund Hardax carved these runes. Trigger carved these runes. <laughs> the Viking equivalent of modern day tagging. Slightly more bombastic than those two is the following phrase. These runes were carved by the man most skilled in runes in the Western Ocean. 
But also there are some that are sexually slightly more explicit, some that have been translated as thorny f***ed, helgi carved. Ingegath is the most beautiful of all women, and this appears beside a picture of a slavering dog. Um, and so it so it goes on. There's one that's one that reads Thatir the Viking came here too weary, which sort of conjures up this idea of the the Vikings absolutely knackered after their after their travel. So Viking graffiti is all about travel. Travel and literacy. It is. I think a couple of really interesting things there. One is the guy who wrote in runes that he was the best person at writing in runes. Yes. I really like that. It's it's pride in Rather like yourself saying that Orkney was the middle of the principal northern Viking maritime highway, being your line rather than mine. Well, no, I meant it was a maritime theme. We, of course, write in one voice. Um, (laughs) No, it's it's pride in Viking literacy and being able to master the runes, which I think is fantastic. Absolutely. And the other thing I love about the story of the the lion in Venice with the runes on it is that the runes are no longer readable. And we are entirely reliant on copies that were made in the 18th or 17th century. In the 1861 was one of the first times they Um, were. But yeah, but often with things like this, you're um, you're not looking at original documents, even when it comes to runestones. And people have have taken, you know, rubbings or or sketches or drawings of them. So um, it's a case of really standing on the shoulders of, of giants, of historians who've been there before you. Or they're not necessarily just historians. They're just kind of like, a lot of them are just sort of kindly travellers who decide to write something down because it's interesting. Anoraks. Um, yes, anoraks. <laughs> yes. 19th century. Historical anoraks. <laughs> historical anoraks. Um, and here we are. And I um, I really like that. It just put, it, It's it, good. It makes you feel like you're, you're doing something that um, has, a, ha, has its own history. Yes. What, where, where are you going to take us now? What have you been interested um, in? Oh... Uh, What's your fave? What's one of your faves? Goading. Oh, goading. You don't mean that. You illiterate son of a gun. I do mean it. (laughs) No, you don't. (laughs) I bet you can't even read. You certainly didn't write it. (laughs) Right. Goading is is fantastic. It's all to do with um, challenging the power of male authority. So these are um, females within the Viking world winding up their males in their lives and provoking them and trying to get them to do stuff. Um, and I've this is one of my favourites actually. Thoroughly enjoyed this. There are examples of taunting wives or goading wives, taunting mothers, and um, what they're doing is they're kind of they're wielding words like a Viking would wield an axe, I suppose, um, trying to trying to provoke their assailant to action. And there are a couple of, of wonderful quotes just to give you an example of what I'm talking about from the sagas. Well, this one's from Laxdala Saga. Um, we've got a Viking uh, woman called Gudrun who's winding up her husband, trying to get him to take revenge on his foster brother who's, who's scorned and rejected his wife. It's slightly complicated, but here we go. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. 
Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. With your temperament, she begins. <laughs> this is criticizing his inaction, his doing nothing. She says... You'd have made some farmer a good group of daughters, fit to do no one any good or any harm. After all the abuse and shame Carton has heaped upon you, you don't let it disturb your sleep while he goes riding by under your very nose, and with only one other man to accompany him. Such men have no better memory than a pig. There's not much chance you'll ever dare to make a move against Carton at home if you won't even stand up to him now, when he only has one or two others to back him up. The lot of you just sit here at home making much of yourselves, and one could only wish there were fewer of you. Oh, that's got to hurt. <laughs> it's brilliant, isn't it? I mean, that. It, I think the, the, the one example that immediately springs to mind of that kind of amazing invective is from Shakespeare. Yeah, um, yeah. Dickens has got some cracking examples, but Shakespeare's is truly wonderful, um, and I think it owes a lot to um, the, the, the wonders of the of the saga writers. There's another one here. Um, so this is someone has been wound up to attack this guy called Kyartan, and then Kyartan's mother has a go at him. Actually, no, she has a go at um, the rest of her sons. Marvellously, unlike your noble kindred, you turn out in that you will not avenge such a brother as Kyartan was. Never would eagle. Your mother's father have behaved in such a manner, and a piteous thing it is to have dolts for sons. Indeed, I think it would have suited you better if you'd been your father's daughter and had married. For here, Haldor, it comes to the old saw, no stock without a duffer. And this is the ill luck of Olaf I see most clearly how he blundered in begetting his sons. So she's trying to sort of incite her sons to revenge the other son's death. That's right, murder. yes. I mean, yeah. It's, it's yeah. kind of a complicated family tree of yeah. de death and revenge, and so yeah. she's trying to do that. But, um, and there's, there's a fair bit of misogyny in there as well. There is misogyny in there in that they're disparaging daughters. Yeah, and they do it in both of those yeah. quotes. Yeah. But, but also what it is, it's trying to attack the masculinity and the honour yeah. of these male warriors, you know, to basically say that they're, they're effeminate that, and they should sort of you know, be sl slightly man up yeah. and deal with the situation. So what's great about these is that on the one hand, you've got examples of women challenging male authority, but then you've yeah. got to think about who actually wrote the sagas. Yes. And the sagas were all yeah. um, commissioned by men and written by men. Yes. And one of the really fascinating ways of looking at these examples of goading and taunting, which I really liked, actually, was, was the idea that um, by describing women as goading and taunting, what they're actually yeah. doing is they are removing the blame for the murder, the misdeed, from their own shoulders. They're saying, oh, well, someone else made me do it. It was my evil wife or my evil yeah. um, mother. Um, and so there's a, there's, a, there's a real kind of aspect of men sidestepping the blame for horrifically violent acts and blaming it on women. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's difficult, isn't it? Because on one sense, you've got that sort of misogynistic underculture, subculture there. But also these are occasions of female power. 
Yeah. So these are very sort of powerful role models that we're being given. And of course, they are, they come in the saga literature. So it's incredibly difficult to relate them to everyday life. Mm-hmm. It's very difficult to recover the history of Viking women, you know, through um, written sources like this, because they are, you're often dealing with stereotypes. And so when often, often what I, what I find has most inspired me about this is the dexterity with which the archaeological evidence is is used to yeah. reconstruct uh, women, in particular on the the chapter on staffs. So the idea of the of the prophetess, which I think we've spoken about in the past. Let's just go stop there and talk quickly about staffs. So staffs for us were all about staffs were about magic. Yeah, magic and female sorceresses. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yes. I and mean, so originally people thought that they, they, they interpreted, so staffs have been discovered in graves. People yeah. thought that they were to do with like roasting spits. or Roasting spits or simply staffs that people had. And if you have a look at the the archaeological evidence over the last hundred years, that seems to have been how staffs were classified. Whereas there seems to have been, over the last couple of decades, feminism seems to have been breathed through. It's almost like archaeology has discovered feminism yep. and suddenly you, you're able to re- reorient the way in which people categorise those those particular finds. So in in this example, they're, they, they're saying that the staffs were um, they're linked to sorcery, they're linked to very powerful women. Very powerful women. Um, seers, people who are prophetesses, yeah. uh, who are able to predict the future and that these, these, in a sense, are wands that are used to cast spells. There's been a whole range of archaeological finds uh, that have allowed them to, to, you know, to sort of think in these ways. And I think that's an example of how we've spoken elsewhere about the, the importance of the historical imagination. And when you have so many gaps in the literature, in the documentary so- sources that survive, in the archaeology of the period... You know, it's about thinking cleverly and thinking imaginatively. Um, and, you know, in this sense, it may be applying feminist theory that gives you a different perspective. But suddenly you're able to reconstruct the very rich lives of Viking women. Yeah. Um, what I'm interested in um, is also toys, the history of children. I loved your chapter on toys. I loved my chapter on toys. It was one of my favourite. I mean, the history of childhood is something that has, as a sociocultural historian, is something that's always really interested me. And I've worked uh, in different periods on the history of children's letters, uh, for example. But with with the Vikings, the problem is that children are often really invisible. So, yeah, for you, toys were all about toys were hidden all children. About hidden children. Yeah. Absolutely. They were all about hidden children. I love that because it goes to the heart of unexpected stuff because you said toys about hidden children and I just said, what are you talking about? Exactly. <laughs> and, here, no and, here, idea. and here you think about children as across the life cycle, so babies, toddlers, infants, teenagers, they are so difficult to find yeah. in the hidden record. If you read through the sagas, you might find occasional glimpses of children playing with toys. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes even girls are, are referred to, but you know, quite often they are absolutely absent from this. The very few graves that survive. One of the main sources that we have for Viking uh, for Viking archaeological culture and material culture is grave finds. Yeah. So the idea that people would have been buried for most of the period, fully clothed and with goods to take to the afterlife with them, which allows you to have some sort of sense of the everyday objects they'd have had. Now, what this means is that we we need to look at toys in order 
to sort of reconstruct the history of childhood. But toys themselves are incredibly difficult. How do you define a toy mm. rather than something that is a, a miniature? So either used for religious purposes, it's maybe a sort of votive offering. You know, it's a sort of collectible. Yeah. Uh, it's like Lemmy out of Motorhead, God rest his soul, who used to um, <laughs> used to collect kinder toys. Right. Did you know that? Didn't know that. Uh, but you know, I think the, the metal what... man used to collect kinder toys. So, you know, so even though you have something that's very small, a miniature, it actually makes me think of Tangled. You know that she does her song in the in the pub. You mean the Disney show? Tangled. The Disney show yes. Tangled that she does her uh, the Rapunzel. The, um Yes, and there's a huge oaf who collects ceramic unicorns. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that may well that may well be it. That's I think that would have been inspired. That was by, in fact my inspiration for Motorhead. this chapter. <laughs> <laughs> but the point is, if, if if there's a small horse that you find in a grave, it might just be a small horse. Yes, it might just be a small horse. Or it might be a, tra- a, to- a child's Having toy. said that, there are certain graves that you can identify as child's graves, and there are in in graves that are associated with with young boys they found small swords boats querns so those sort of big grinding stones and the idea that what the archaeologists have sort of said is that actually what these are it's part of the socialization of children so you have a boat so that you learn the arts of navigation you have a small quern so that you can grind what's more difficult is to actually discover girls toys because girls, I think, are doubly invisible, mm-hmm. partly because women in Viking history seem to be more invisible than men, but also how do you identify girls' toys? Um, if we look at some of the grave evidence, you can find there's a grave in Burka, for example, that's been identified as a girl's uh, grave, and there is a doll in it, there are clothes in it, and there are also things like needles. And from that, you can get a sense of... Uh, of, uh, of sort of roles within the household. So the, the the doll is associated with... I mean, it may have just been a doll to sort of play with as a child could play with, but also it's often associated with role-playing uh, motherhood. And also the, the, the presence of a needle suggests needlework and being trained to sew for within the household. Um, the other thing is, if we're thinking generally about children's toys... You don't necessarily need anything that's been fashioned, like a sword or a doll or whatever. Children will literally pick up almost anything uh, and, yes. start, and start playing with it. Yes, and that, then it turns into a toy with what they're doing with it rather than yes. what it's designed to yes. be. Yes, so it's about their imagination. And that, I suppose that's the, diffi- that's the, that's the real challenge for you. It's, think, it's how do you recreate or reconstruct childish culture? Yeah. So, so you can look at the presence of objects. You then need to go, what do they do with them? Mm-hmm. And then how do you get at the child's imagination out of that? And though, that's where the gaps and omissions are. It's really hard as a historian to actually do that. Yeah. I, I really loved... Um, I think the gaps and omissions is really... It's, it's something that goes to the heart of what we do. Um, yes. But it's also key for doing this. And one of the things that makes me think about this is the chapter on Viking break-ins. Mm. I mean, you raised it and you said, oh, I'm going to write, write something about Viking break-ins. And I had no idea what you were talking about. And you were talking about people breaking in to Viking burials. Yes. And so there's evidence that... that the break-ins happened maybe a, a generation yeah. or so after, sometimes quite quickly after. Yes. The actual burial was put in place, but it wasn't just about stealing. It's not grave robbing necessarily no. as we think it was, but there's a much more complex thing going on here. And um, we argue it's all about 
power politics. So people are visibly attacking significant archaeological sites within the landscape and they are breaking into them. And it's not something that happens in the dead of night. It takes a long time. It takes several days to actually go in dig out a hole into the grave, get what you want and come back. And they were doing it so that people could see them do it. And what they were taking is really interesting. So archaeologists have identified what has been taken from what's not there. So that's another example of the the gaps and how clever people are doing, especially um, swords, weapons, things uh, which might have had a certain amount of power. So where they would expect that to be present in a grave and it's not... And you can make the assumption that someone's actually gone in there and taken it out. Yeah, but also taking out skeletons and skulls and stamping on them yeah. very publicly. So the idea is that basically one of the one of the purposes of these sort of huge burial mounds is that they are symbolic representations of that family's power base in that region. When that particular group of Vikings gets overthrown, a new group of Vikings move in and so they desecrate that area and put their own stamp and identity on the landscape by basically building their own tombs instead. So it's a, it's a really, there's some one terrific work done on it. I wish if I had my time again, I think I might well be a Viking scholar. Yeah. Rather than a Tudor and Stuart specialist. Well, I've always been fascinated by different uh, alphabets. And yes. runes was something that I was always in, interested in. Yeah. Um, so I could have done that. I, li- I, like, I love the, the, the mystery of it all. The lack of curves is interesting, particularly with um with a chisel, isn't it? All straight up and down. Yeah. Um, I think we've given everyone a very good taster yes. there. I mean, what I, I just one thing I wanted to say is how varied all of the different sagas are. Yes. And how, as a historian, some of them are particularly good for their depictions of honour, marriage, revenge, reconciliations. Others are good for myths. Others are good for toy, well, not toys, others are good for games. Um, some are good for uh, the Irish. Um, they've all got their own little swords, str- their own little strengths and weaknesses. Yep. So some have battles in, some don't. Some have this in, some don't. Yep. And kind of getting your head around that was really, really important. I mean, I think I went into it and I assumed that they were all not necessarily of uh, a similar value, but they kind of covered the same sort of topics. But of course, mm. they don't at all. They're, they're, they're utterly unique in, in what they describe and who was in them. And because of the historian or the chronicler who actually wrote them down, I think they wrote down what they were interested in as well. So they reflect all sorts of different aspects of, of mm. Viking society. And mm. I've loved that, really kind of yeah. enjoying the the... Oh, I'm not sure what the word is. The kaleidoscope, yes. I think. The kaleidoscope of, of, the, of the Viking world. And you only really get that if you look at all of the sagas. So if you look at yeah. one, you're like, well, that's kind of interesting. But when if you look at 20 of them, you're like, wow, there's so much different stuff and so many different ways that you can you can get into it. Whether it's by saying power pol- um, break-ins are all about power politics, um, colour is, is a code in Viking life. Um, and all of the, you know, um, fun's all about Viking strategy. We found all this out from the sagas and mixed with the archaeology. Teeth are about identity. Teeth are great. They're really interesting. Yeah. Or you, in order to discover that, you better read the book, which is out. When is it out, Sam? Uh, in the summer. In the summer? In July? In the summer. Um, before we go, um, I'm just going to tell you a few things about what we're going to be doing over the next few weeks. So I think the next few podcasts, we're going to do one just like this. We've done the Vikings. We'll do one on the Romans and then we'll do one World War II and then we'll do one on uh, the Tudors. 
And then we're going to go back to the core of unexpected, and we're going to be doing specific subjects. What do you fancy doing? I want to do voices. History of voices. Yes, you said that. I shouted at the dog when I, uh, when we just before we went into in, into the studio here, and you said, "Oh, we should do voices." Yes, we should. And Was also, that... I saw um, I saw Susie Lipscomb's "The Voice of Neem." That's absolutely. There. We've got a copy here. Yes, we have um, a copy. So that is um, Susie Lipscomb's uh, new book, "The Voices of Neem," and that's like I'm looking forward to reading. It's about recovering um, lost vo- voices, lost voices of women in 16th century France. So we're going we're going to do voices. Um, we're going to do breath. We're going to do walking backwards. We are, I'm so excited about this. I, can't, I cannot remember. I want to do boredom. We're doing boredom. Um, just Swearing. Quickly walking backwards. Uh, I came across this when I was on a trip to Chatham Dockyard and looked around the ropery there and um, realised that the people who made the ropes spent almost all of their lives walking backwards. And I suddenly thought, oh my God, can we do a history of walking backwards? And of course you can do a history of walking yes. backwards and we're going to prove it. Uh, the re- history of walking backwards is also about the Romans and their scorched earth tactics as they retreated. Oh, that's good. They burnt the crops, sowed the ground with salt. Yeah, yeah. And moved to different places. I want to do the history of no. Yeah, that sounds good. <laughs> I, want to do I was trying to think of something funny to say there, but couldn't off the top of my head. Not the history of his, swearing. The I history want to do of the swearing. negative. Um, fingers. We've n- done hands. Fingers. Neediness. Oh, neediness. Oh, my God. Are you a needy person? Glass. Glass. I, um, I am sometimes. Glass. Uh, glass would be good. Glass and boredom, yeah, which is Wood. going to be tremendous. Wood. Uh, let's do w- water. Mm. Wine. Beer. We have, we have, I mean, there's so many. Should we do a little run of a... Of spirits. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Whilst tasting them. Of, dr- of drinks. Yes. yes. I think we should listen. Um, thank you all very much for listening. That was immensely good fun, as it always is sitting in my shed with the daybell. We didn't do keys. Keys. Oh, that's so interesting. Housewives. Yeah. Power. It is all about yep. power and control. Keys. Yes. They, they, the Vikings had tiny keys like you'd have for a little secret diary. Yep. They found loads of keys and the keys are useless. The keys don't work no. in locks. They are symbolic terrible, keys. Terrible keys. Anyway, um, listen, it's gonna it's a good book. Uh, pre-order it on Amazon, off you go. Um, if you like what you hear, please leave us a review on iTunes. It really, really helps. And we're on a bit of a mission to make everyone think about the past in a different way, and we can't do it without your help. And that's one of the things that you guys can do. Um, so please get involved. Um, also, do uh, tell your friends and let us know if you're enjoying it. Tell us on Twitter. You can find us. Um, I'm on Dr. Sam Willis. And I am on at James Daybell. And you can follow Histories of the Unexpected on at Unexpected Pod. And you can find out more about what we've got planned um, in the coming months. Um, all sorts of extra stuff at historiesoftheunexpected.com. If you haven't come to see us live, uh, do please come and see us. James and I have nearly done 40 shows. And um, we're, yes. we are having a wonderful we've time got a, doing We've it. got a busy summer. We're going to be doing all sorts of festivals. Festivals and theatres. Festivals and theatres coming up. Events. And then more and more and more. Um, it, the show, the, well, the podcast, the book's been turned into a live show by a friend of mine who's a playwright. And it's full of props and it's completely hilarious. And I, we've been enjoying it more than anything else we've ever done. One of the things that we are really inspired to do is to inspire young people to get interested in history. So if there are any teachers and schools listening to this and you would like to get involved with what we are doing, please get in touch with us. Um, that's it. Thank you so much for listening. As always, we all love you to bits. Get in touch. Bye. Okay, bye.
When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.